the Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we're offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership in the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership in the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to welcoming you to the club. You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at inforumsf. Good evening. Good evening, everybody. I'm Suzanne St. John Crane, CEO of American Leadership Forum Silicon Valley and president of ALF National. Welcome to tonight's virtual program within Forum at the Commonwealth Club. This evening, I am excited to be in conversation with Sukinder Singh Cassidy, founder and chairperson of The Board List. In 2015, Sukinder made headlines when she published an open letter, Tech Women Choose Possibility. And in it, she challenged the male-dominated tech community to increase the rate of progress for women by leveraging its wealth of female talent. And tonight, we're here to celebrate her new book, Choose Possibility, Take Risks and Thrive Even When You Fail, an ode to the opportunity and life born from calculated risk-taking. But before we start, I'd like to remind the audience that if you would like to ask us a question, please ask it in the chat or comment section, and we're going to try and get to as many questions as possible towards the end of the program. So glad you're here tonight. So let's get started. Sukinder, great to be here with you. Well, thank you. I'm excited to do this. Hey, congratulations. You wrote a book. (laughs) You finished. (laughs) I know. (laughs) know. Everyone's like, you wrote a book. Are you going to write another one? I was like, "Uh, it took me a lot to birth this one. So uh, why don't you ask me in 12 months? But uh, I understand that, you know, most of us think we can never write a book. And all I would say to people is you don't think you can do it until you sit down to write. And then somehow many months later, you have one. So I assure you, if I can do it, anyone can do it. Anyway, how long did it take you? Uh, I put it on a rather compressed time frame. So I promised our publisher a book in six months, but I was very lucky to have a co-writer who worked with me and, you know, I was writing, he was editing and researching. And so we just jammed. Um, I love it. Well, we want to dive in here with about 45 minutes of, of just a conversation with some questions about your book, which I had the, the pleasure of being able to look through and, and uh, pick out some themes. And I, you know, I want to start about you, right? We want to know who you are and, you know, it's it's easy for us to to look at your bio or look at your career path, but how, who are you as a person? Like, how are you showing up here today? Well, I think uh, how I show up at work and how I show up are probably not that different. I am enthusiastic, uh, high energy. Uh, I'm somebody who likes to take in a lot of information and process things at the same time. I'm somebody who likes to parallel process and always be busy. Um, I'm somebody who cares deeply about showing up authentically and just, you know, uh, trying to have impact in everything I do. Uh, I'm a mom of three kids and, you know, the only other passion I have besides work is obviously my children uh, who I adore. Uh, And I guess I'm somebody who feels like pretty grateful. You know, I have lived a life where 
possibility was possible for me. And I completely appreciate that. And, you know, and, and that's sort of my perspective on the book. I don't claim to be like, you know, have come from a challenge background, but I feel grateful that I had possibility. And if I can pass more possibility on others, I think that's an opportunity. Let's dive into the book a little bit. I, I really appreciated that that you talked about, uh, you know, in ALF, we talk about practicing mindfulness and presence and really knowing ourselves and self-awareness. And I love that in, in your book, you talk about the self-awareness sandwich, right? So passion, superpowers, and values. So talk to us a little bit about that. How did you come to those three uh, sort of pinnacles of, 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 uh, of self-awareness and what are they for you? Well, it's uh, it's interesting you asked. I, you know, as I as I've talked to leaders over the years, because obviously as I've grown up as an executive, I've had the opportunity to give talks. I always say to people, "What are your superpowers?" And on average, whether that room is filled with people who are, who are new grads or people who are CEOs, only about a quarter of the people in the room put up their hand. And I never know is that like modesty that is keeping you from saying, "I don't know what my superpowers are," because for me as a leader. I actually think not knowing what I'm good at and what I'm not good at is actually crippling. If I think about building an organization around me as a founder, as a CEO, that is going to do its best work. Not knowing who you are and what you're injecting into the equation to me feels rather um, risky, for lack of a better word. So, (laughs) you know, from being a founder, being a CEO or executive, I've had sort of self-awareness pounded into me over years and years of 360 reviews. But as I said, what I appreciate is we are an ingredient in the equation, any equation we're a part of. So I, I think that claiming what we're great at and claiming what we need to become a better at or need to complement ourselves with is kind of essential to creating any winning strategy. Um, for me, I would say that, you know, if you were to think about those three things, my superpowers, I, th- I talked about them a little bit. And by the way, you know, superpowers and areas of development are often pretty mirrored, right? I am a highly passionate person who I think brings energy and you know, hopefully a level of excitement and get, get, can get people excited. That's great. The downside of that, by the way, is I'm impatient. I often rush people along, right? So, but my superpower is, yeah, I can motivate people. I can motivate people and bring energy to any situation. Um, probably another superpower is what we talked about. I actually can consume information very fast and distill it. Um, and that happens to be something um, I'm good at. So that's at the kind of the superficial level. Those are my, you know, those are my gifts I think of. My values, my values are actually something more deeply deep for me there. And I say to people, your values are what you think is just and fair in the world. Like if everybody conducted themselves this way, you would find, you know, you would find yourself feeling safe and included. And for me, my, like one of my biggest values is authenticity. I sort of am like, you know, I want to show up as who I am. I want others to show up as, as what they are. I love candor. I love transparency. I believe the world is more fair and just when we each show up as who we are, as opposed to trying to be, you know, someone else. So authenticity is kind of a key value for me. Um, another value for me is probably, and it's, it's, you know, between a superpower and a value is hustle. Like I believe that we are, you know, entitled to nothing in this world and that, you know, every day we should strive to show up you know, and make the most of what we have because we all have limited time here. And so hustle and authenticity are probably my values. You know, my superpowers are, you know, are probably what we talked about. And then my passion, my passion is building. I love to build stuff. (laughs) I love to build products that people use. (laughs) I love building, you know, companies with a group of people and feeling like we went on a mission together. You know, my entire career has been about building. So clearly that's, that's a passion for me. 
right? And you touched on this, that, you know, we, if, if we've learned nothing else over the last couple of years, this isn't a dress rehearsal, right? And we only have today and, you know, how do we make it count? So I appreciate, appreciate that value and that, that uh, passion as well. Um, and yet, you know, we all have our kryptonite and you point that out in the book, right? So know your own kryptonite. Um, so it loosens the power that it has over you. I mean, that's another piece of being, you know, self-aware and, and being able to examine your authentic self, right? So talk to us a little bit about what, you know, what's your kryptonite? How did you move through exploring that and being able to move past it? Well, it's interesting. I, I don't think I don't think you're ever done with your kryptonite. I think it just keeps showing up again and again. Um, but not only is there power in knowing it, you know, often we don't take risks in our lives because we fear failure and how we may look to others. Once you understand you're not just your superpowers, but your kryptonite, one of the magical things that happens is you actually feel a little more free to take risks because you've sort of confronted those things in your ego. Your ego is confronted those things that might scare you, if that makes sense. So there's actually an inherent relationship between being able to take more risk and understanding your weaknesses and looking at them. So my kryptonite, I identified it. I'm highly impatient. You know, I can be with people who believe that I am rushing them through a moment and that I'm not present because my mind is cycling and I'm like trying to like, I'm, I'm pushing them to get their next word out. So you can imagine that that doesn't necessarily make people feel steady. For some people, it makes them feel like I'm just hurrying them, you know, through a process. So that's one sort of like one, one big area of kryptonite for me. The other is, um, and I think I can talk about how I've learned to tame both of these, but you know, they're still there. Um, the other is like uh, that passion also shows up as emotionality, right? Like there are days when, you know, that passion can, you know, make me very emotional on a topic. And while people appreciate that passion, in the good times, it also means it's very hard to hide how I'm feeling about something. And, you know, when you think about having a leader and like you want a leader to be steady at the helm, right? You can imagine that an emotional leader you know, has the potential to evoke like anxiety among the team. And so for me, like knowing those two things and they show up in every performance review all the time. Like, I mean, you know, I, I, I now I just try and claim them as my own and admit them to the people who are going to work with me. I think over the years on that sort of impatience, I literally have to sometimes kind of take a physical action to move myself out of one mode and into another. So if I want to be a better listener, as an example, and not be cycling my head. You know, sometimes with my teams, I need to pick up a you know pen and go to the whiteboard and move to like the scribe. And when I'm the scribe, people feel free, right, to express their own ideas, if that makes sense. So that's like one tactic I've used. And when I'm emotional, look, I can tell you, having a family to put things in perspectives really helps. And I, I, I do all the things you might expect. I never, I never write something I'm upset about an email, ever, ever. I would rather just have a conversation with something. And if I'm really upset about something, I just don't do anything like till the next morning at the earliest, often 24 hours. And if it's really bothering me, I wait till like the following Monday, because I know by then, like I will cycle through whatever emotion I'm feeling and be in a better position to respond. So for me, time cures a lot. Um, but those are the types of tactics I employ to, you know, deal with my own weaknesses, but they never go away. Yeah, they never exactly. go away. It's the awareness. And like you said, having those tips and tricks, like what are your triggers and now how do I respond to that? It's being able to pause right before you actually take, take the next action, which you sometimes inaction too is your best friend. Absolutely. <laughs> breath, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. For somebody like me, yeah. inaction is the tactic, even though this book yeah. is all about taking action. Yeah, for right? me, it's quite, you know, it's quite like inaction is the key thing to do. I think on a on a personal level too, I would love to hear. You know, you talk a lot about the the your career and your choices and what you went through. And I want to dig into that a little bit too, but I want to call out just 
you know, this, this badge of honor of failure in Silicon Valley, right. That, that, uh, you know, failure is, is, you, you know, something that we, we are supposed to move through. We are, it's supposed to happen to us here in Silicon Valley, but it's spiritually and emotionally gut-wrenching, right? It just is on a human level. So, you know, would you be willing to share with us just a moment when you had that, that moment of failure and how you recovered through it? And I'd be curious too, you know, as you've gotten older and wiser, right? What, what, what role does age and experience play in your ability to have capacity, right? To be able to handle uh, those bumps in the road. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, one of the failures I've talked about publicly, and it was, uh, it's certainly a big one. I left, I was at Google for many people who are familiar with my career, not that you are, but if you are, I was at Google for six years and um, helped build the Asia Pacific and Latin America region. And I was one of Google's most senior executives. So had had a great career run and wanted to leave Google because I was never going to be CEO. Business people don't become CEOs at Google. It's really product or engineering driven folks. And in fact, Sundar came from product and engineering. Um, so my, like many of my compatriots, Sheryl Sandberg and Tim Armstrong, just some amazing leaders. I was thinking about my next act because I knew I would never be CEO at Google. And so I left and I decided to go back to a startup. I took nine months. You can read about it in the book. I studied. I knew I wanted to pivot into e-commerce. It was an area of passion for me. I thought it was getting reinvented, like the whole idea of commerce and, uh, and inspiration online. And I ultimately chose what I thought was very wisely, a company that had been pursuing me, Polyvore, a 10-person startup. And I left a business that was, you know, I had grown it to several billion, 2,000 people in the region, like at the peak of my career. And I joined a startup as the CEO. And within six months, I was out. I mean, I was out. The founder and I, while very intellectually well-matched, once I was inside the company, had, I would just say, different values in how we operated. It was like a marriage that wasn't working. And he ultimately said to the board that it was him or me. And the board chose him. And you can imagine for somebody who has had kind of the kind of career success I'd had until that point, first of all, to lose in a battle like that was painful. Um, I had the option, I guess, to stay and fight, but like my mentors were like, why would you want to do that? You have a values mismatch with, you know, this organization and this person and is like, is it, it may be worth more to that person than it is to you. Um, but mostly I was humiliated. I was like, wow, I just took one of the most public risks I could. I was fairly high profile at the time and I failed at my first CEO job. And so um, I'll talk about how I recovered, but, you know, there's a difference between, and I've had multiple failures in my career. You know, I had a video commerce startup, Joyous, 10 years before all the new wave of video commerce companies just, you know, just emerged in 2020 and 2021 and are becoming unicorns. I had one 10 years ago, you know, and I couldn't get it funded after seven years because its metrics were good, but not great. But the difference was in the Polywar case, when we fail and we've had no impact, it's just much more gut-wrenching than when you've been at something and you know you gave it your best effort and you were able to produce some results, right? And maybe not the results you wanted, but you like literally left it all on the table, right? I didn't get the chance to leave it all on the table apply for. I was in and out and I had no impact on that business. So that kind of failure is not only public, but it's gut-wrenching when we fail to even achieve the type of impact we think we're capable of. Versus we achieved impact, but we still didn't get the results we wanted. And, and they're very different, you know, how you feel about those things. So what did I do? Well, I, do, I did what I always do. Um, in times when I am feeling very low, I retrench. I really do not want to talk to anybody that in a fragile moment for me can make me feel more fragile. 
uh, I remember I, I think I flew home and saw my mom in Canada. I cried my eyes out, you know, I relied on my family and my husband, certainly. I remember talking to my priest, you know, and he asked me how work was going and I totally lost it. And his advice to me in the moment, I remember it because at the time I had, my son was about a year old, not even, maybe he's nine months. And I remember him reassuring me that things would be okay. And then at that moment, like the good news was that my son needed me. It was just a, like, just a simple reminder that like, here I am stressing about what's going to happen in my career. And he's like, you have this newborn at home, he's nine months and like, he needs you right now. And of course there'll be another opportunity. Um, but I, I, I withdrew from every event in the Valley. I didn't go to any mixers. I didn't socialize. I wasn't on email. <laughs> I literally, you know, just hid because I really couldn't take in that moment. Anybody asking me, I was going to break down if they asked. And I actually was feeling like, you know, when we're feeling vulnerable, I don't actually need people who make me feel more vulnerable. I don't need those questions. And so I typically, in those moments, I retrench. And I'm always so grateful for my family because it gives me perspective. You know, they're the people who love me despite my career, not for my career, despite my career, because my career drives them crazy, right? It's mostly that they remember the other side of me and they help me remember the other side of me. So that's often how I cope. I just stay out until I'm like, you know, can feel like I, I can reinforce who I am and what I care about and then get back into the ring. I don't really want to. Yeah. And time heals, time heals, time and perspective. I mean, more than you know, time is one perspective is another, like, I feel incredibly lucky that I come from a family that grew up with a lot of religion. And so ultimately, you know, these things may shake me, but a little time with my family and kind of, at least for me, spirituality is part of how I grew up. Like I can remember what it's all about and I just need to adjust my perspective. Once I get it back, I'm good. It doesn't mean I, I'm not in pain, but I am stable. And then I want to go for it again. Great advice. Great reminders too on perspective. I mean, all we have to do is look around the world right now or Northern California or yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. What really matters. And when you have a nine month old crying and needing a diaper yeah. changed, it all comes home, right? <laughs> it all comes home. He really doesn't care that I just got fired. I mean, he's like, pretty much he's like, Hey mom, what about me? And I'm like, yeah, what about yeah, you? Yeah. That's a good reminder. You're why I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned your priest and you mentioned your spirituality, which I really appreciate how grounding that can be, right? Especially mm -hmm. when we're, we're at our bottom. And you mm -hmm. actually, I love how you put a um, uh, an idea in your book about having those professional priests, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you're, you're, you, you talked about, you know, how going to your family when you're trying to make a decision and, you know, I can so relate to this, just talking to my husband till he's, you know, ready to Blue fall the off face. the bar stool going, really? Do we have to go rehash the pros and cons list again? Because I'm done. Right. Yep, so, absolutely. you know, that having a combination of, you know, people that love and care for you that you're not going to burn out and have capacity, right? Who, who are those people? For, I mean, how long did it, how did you identify that team? And how might some of our, our viewers or listeners uh, find those resources for themselves in the decision-making process? Well, first of all, you hit the nail on the head. I, as you can probably tell from that conversation, I'm not a believer that our families are there to be our work therapists because, you know, we risk draining from those relationships, um, everything that we're meant to give to them as well. So while my family has been a tremendous support, you know, pretty early on, I realized as I was going through work pressures that if all I ever talked with my husband about was what, you know, my obsessions in my head, like that was a pretty unhealthy way to conduct a marriage. And so I think it was maybe, I was in my late thirties and I actually went to a classic place, which a lot of people do. I went to YPO, you know, cause YPO is one of these, we, there are often a lot of communities that exist for, you know, for your, let's say if you're a product manager, there are product manager forms, you know, there are many professional networks now that each of us can be a part of. And for me, I joined YPO 
And interestingly, um, I found that YPO was a lot of time that I didn't have to give. But through the YPO process, I met a coach who, you know, was coaching the YPO forums, including mine. And I really loved dealing with him. So I said, hey, David, would you be my coach? And I actually withdrew from YPO, not having the time, but I kept the coach. And so David has been, you know, is a professional executive coach, and I've used him for 10 years. So so I, I, I literally do pay somebody to listen to me bitch. Excuse my language. Like, I, I believe right. it's like probably the healthiest thing I can do for my family is to have somebody to go to who can give me perspective, who obviously works with other CEOs. But then the other thing I did, and, you know, in my professional life, I've been lucky enough to have many women here in the Valley who have grown up in a similar era as me, had children at the same time, ascended in their own careers. And I think I have drawn closer to several of them. And, you know, it's not that they're not, they're not my best friends. They're good friends. They're different from the women I may go, you know, hang out with on the weekends or play tennis with. And of course, I somewhat socialize with them. But there are a lot of professional women um, who I met, who I feel like can identify with some of my struggles. And at least two or three of them, I continue to go back to when we've developed friendships that are a mix of like work advice, you know, and like family advice. And I, and I think that those relationships are pretty unique for me because I do feel like they know what I'm going through at work. And I really count on their judgment because they live in a similar professional sphere to me, you know, and they have a lot of knowledge about the, ty- the types of choices I'm considering. What a gift to have that too, to have that tribe, have that team, right? Well, we and you all, said like, how do uh, we all find them? I think the good news for us is if you would look for a professional priest, I would look for people that you have worked with, that you've been collegial with, that could have been a partner or somebody, you know, uh, at work that's in another group that's similarly situated and, you know, invite them to coffee, you know, cultivate a relationship with people who can give you sound advice, but maybe are not vested on the outcome of what you do. And that is sort of the distinction with our families. They're often like, A, they need other things from us, but they're also so close to the situation that sometimes it's not objective advice. For sure. For sure. No, great reminders. I want to dive into, you know, the, the, the primary theme of your book, right, which is choosing possibility and this whole idea of trapping our, we often trap ourselves, right, with these binary choices that, you know, and which is debilitating, you know, mm-hmm. instead of being able to really, you know, what, how I would say, you know, kind of sense, sense the whole landscape, sense the possibilities and not close yourself off. Um, how long does it take you? How long is it, does it take you to kind of go through um, that discernment process, weighing the costs? I mean, you, you are so methodical about it. I have a pros and cons list and you have charts and graphs and <laughs> alternative models. I was loving yeah. it, you know, it's very methodical. So, I mean, how long do you, how long should one, you know, go through really weighing those risks? And is there a benefit of just sitting on it for some time? Well, I think uh, the way I think about risk taking is, first of all, I believe everybody can become a risk taker. That's like the most important nugget in all this, right? And we tend to think, as you said, of risks as very binary, these large choices. But to be clear, I'm actually um, pretty bimodal. When it comes to small risks, I take them quite easily. Like, because and, and a risk for me, and when I say small risk, what do we mean by micro risk? It might be researching a new job. It might be taking an interview. It might be speaking up at work when you feel uncomfortable in a meeting. These are all the types of little risks we can take every day to discover, to learn, to try and have just a little bit more impact, right? If we're willing to put ourselves out there. So actually, I don't do very much thinking about those at all because what I realize, and and I think for most people, some of these little risks, I realize that most of those risks I can walk back from. I do something, I get it wrong, I can always apologize. I, you know, I make a fool of myself today, tomorrow, maybe I'll say something witty. I, I, so I think on small risk, risk taking, I'm a big fan of like, 
yeah, do a minute by minute assessment. Like what's the real cost and, and take the leap because at a minimum you're going to build these muscles, right. Of just a feedback loop. And like failure starts to become a little less scary when you kind of take little risks all the time on the bigger risks. And you identified this, I'm, I'm somebody who gives myself a time frame. So I think the difference between sort of endlessly cycling and not is often a time frame. Um, I'm in a career transition right now, right? I wrote a book. I left StubHub a year ago. At some point here, I'll need another full-time job. And I, you're right, I'm in, I'm in discernment mode. But I think the thing I like to do and I, and I sort of encourage everyone to do is sometimes uncertainty feels so uncomfortable that we want to make the first choice. And for me, I find it difficult to make a choice of one of one. To me, that seems like very risky. It seems very risky to me to choose only from one thing. So I always go through a process of what I call parallel pipelining. I am taking risks all over the place just to discover. I'm pushing like 10 carts up a hill while like sort of like dating a lot of people while marrying no one. And I want to push every opportunity as far as it can go. So I see all the possibilities, relatively speaking, in some considered period of time. Let's say over a six month span. I'm like, okay. They may not all land at once, but if I'm iterating through possibilities, I'm building up my knowledge until I've seen enough that I can be like, okay, now I see the landscape. Now I'm ready to choose. And I understand that like life is not that perfect. I've often had opportunities presented to me where they're one of one, right? But most often we can find even a little bit of time, even a week or two weeks to validate some of the choices that are in front of us by just seeing what else is possible. Um, and that's what I encourage people to do on big choices, which is like, how about before you choose, you generate choices? So you have one choice. That's awesome. Now, if you could spend two weeks generating five more, it's either going to give you conviction about your choice, or you're going to realize that you may be you're pursuing something because it's the only option rather than meeting your goals. Uh, so you're right. I'm a, I'm a choice builder before I'm a choice maker on big choices. Oh. Perfect advice. That is fantastic. I love that. And, you know, we're, you, many of us just go by gut instinct, right? What's our gut instinct? You hear that, you know, what do you feel in your gut? But you go, you have this other formula of gut, data, gut. Talk to us about how that works. Sure. So um, if anything, now that I'm older and you asked, you know, you asked in the previous question, what role does age play? Age plays a couple of roles in almost everything, which is just that once you, it's not like you're so old and wise, but once you've seen something cycle, and once you've seen cycles repeat, you have pattern recognition. So I know many people think like something is a gut feeling and I believe in my gut strongly, but sometimes I realize that my gut is really like some pattern I've seen before that I'm worried is going to happen again, right? So like a perfect example, I'll take a risk and hire someone who maybe everybody else is not in favor of on the team. And then that person, you know, is acting really strangely. They say they want the job, but they don't send back the offer letter. You know, they, you know, and by the way, I've had these situations before. And then my gut is starting to ring. I'm like, oh, like something about the way this is unfolding. I can predict like, this is not a good sign. And, you know, inevitably that person a day before the job starts, rescinds the offer and says like, I'm sorry, you know, I decided to take another job, even though I signed your offer letter. And like, right, that's, a, it, that's just like pattern matching. So I might say, oh, my gut was ringing. But that's like pattern matching. So I believe that when we're young, one of the reasons choices are so difficult is because we don't have that much experience to pattern match, right? So we don't know what our gut is telling us. Like it's it's really hard to discern. And then of course, like looking to the data, I always look to the data as we talked about. I try and do my pros and cons list. I try and make a calculated choice. But at the end, if my gut is ringing again, then I want to honor it a little bit because my gut is telling me that in some data set, 
there is a, a piece of data that I'm just not paying attention to. That piece of data might be, I've seen something that looks like this movie before and it didn't work out. And something about this situation is giving me the same, you know, patterns. So I think often gut is patterns. Um, I like to honor my gut, you know, but, but honoring your gut without data, it's like, it, it, it's sort of, again, like I, I, I guess I would just say that's a very uncalculated risk to take. I'd say if you want to make a smart risk, like lay out all the data and then listen to your gut and try and identify why is your gut ringing on an issue. And often you'll come back to some pattern from your past that is really just in, like a, a secret piece of data hiding in your head that shows up right. in the form of a gut reaction to something. I love that. That's great. Yeah. And, you know, the more data we have or the more experience we have, right, that that gut kind of ringing can mm -hmm. happen. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. It just means you've got more to pull from. You've got yes, more memory uh, exactly. and experience. It's just like, right? it's like a gut is like your muscle memory just chirping away at you in the back and you can't quite put your thumb on what it's saying, but it's coming from, it's coming from a pattern you've seen before. Okay, I have to ask you this question because as a, as someone that's been through uh, leadership challenges or different, you know, uh, hard decisions, right? I often see signs from the universe, right? Sometimes it's just like, mm, okay, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. that would not, okay, I know which way I have to, do you ever, do you believe in that? Have you seen that? Do you have any good stories about just sort of, you, you do all your homework, you do the footwork, you write your list, you analyze, you, you, you create more choices, as you said, and then it's clear based mm -hmm. on what lands in your lap or what, what the universe says that, okay, I know where I need to go. Yes. I mean, I, I do actually believe in what the universe tells you. And maybe it's because, as I said, I was raised in somewhat of a spiritual family. So the irony of my upbringing is that my father was a maker and he believed in possibility and sort of on the one hand made me feel like I could do anything. He was an entrepreneur and a doctor. Yet on the other hand, my father spent kind of all his time telling us like, okay, like while you're out there, you know, ambitiously trying, like, you know, it's all in God's plan. So like, whatever you're thinking, guess what? You're like an ant on the back of an elephant. So it's rather ironic that, you know, I felt like I grew up very empowered. Um, and my father was, you know, always encouraging me to try new possibilities. Yet he was kind of was always, you know, also saying to us like, yeah, you know, you think you control it all, but guess what? There was like a higher power and, and, you know, good luck with that. Divine plan. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> There's a plan behind the plan. So like you can do all you want, but you can't control the outcome. So I will say that, um, uh, at least on several occasions in my life, whether it was the, oh my God, the star said I should go this way. I, I would, I don't know if I have that example, but I, I'd say it more like, my father said to me, and I believe it to be true, that sometimes I would keep pushing on something just so I could push it my way. And only when I let go of the outcome, literally let go of the outcome, did things work out. When my first instinct might be, I, I'm just going to grind my way through that thing. I can control everything. And I think in my career, I've learned like there are things you just can't control. And sometimes the best you can do is, you know, put in your best effort, lay every card on the table, and then just step back. And to your point, the universe is, you know, and other forces are at work. And when things land, you'll see where they land for a reason, right? Um, so I've had that happen multiple times in my career, you know, times when I was ready to go to battle, you know, I remember at least once at Google when somebody was like, trying to like take over my territory, and they were going to go battle. And on a Friday, I was like, I'm going to go in there. I'm like, tell my boss what's what. And, you know, instead, I just like settled down. And I was like, if my boss wants to listen to this person who's just massinating in politics, why I have built this region and like I have put everything into it and I have results to deliver it. If I think that's the way he's going to go, 
I'm just going to leave it with him and trust him. And sure enough, you know, by that Monday, like the person who was sort of trying to take my territory didn't succeed. And, you know, my boss showed the trust in me that I should have thought he had rather than sort of pushing him to the brink. Like, what are you going to do? And so like just letting it go and letting it fall and see what he would do. That was at least one example. And in Polygor, I mean, I went to my professional priest when, you know, that situation was a mess. And they were like, they sort of just reminded me like, look, the universe is telling you what kind of values exist in an organization and a set of people that could treat you this way. And is that really something you want to be a part of? And so like, they really encouraged me to just let go, like to just let go. Right. And understand that even that was happening for a reason. Maybe it was meant to show me that I really was not a fit there. Um, So I believe in those kinds of things. Yes. I love it. And you have it back to self-awareness, right? You have to have that sort of being tuned in to who you are, who you are authentically to be able to hear and see those sorts of signs and read them for what they are. Right. Yeah. I mean, often we don't want to read them, right. Because they go in the face of what we want to happen. Um, And I'm as guilty as that as anyone, but as I said, sometimes you just have to let go. Yeah, no, for sure. Let's switch gears and talk about fear. My favorite topic. Sure. (laughs) So how do you, you know, and, and so much of what we're talking about is about fear, fear of risk, fear of failure, right? How do you develop a habit of taking a step back and thinking about the worst case scenario as you're embroiled in this decision-making or discernment and do that? Do you do that to lessen your fear? Does that work? Oh, it does work. I'm going to say, I'm going to say it absolutely does work. You know, so, uh, so I discovered a few years ago when I was having a conversation with my coach, right? Because I've been through career transitions and worried that they wouldn't work if I went to a startup, whatever. You can imagine how I felt post-polyvore. I was like, oh my God, if I take another risk again and it doesn't work out, what does it, you know, what's going to happen to me? Um, but he actually uh, had a phrase for me, which I really appreciated, which, which is why I think I do it and why I think it's possible. He said, Sukinder, most people have an immature relationship with their inner risk manager. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he said, like, you know, inside of all of us is some voice that's trying to keep us safe. Like, that's actually a really, you know, that's a, you know, that's a voice that's there for a reason, right? It might prevent us from doing something really crazy or taking, you know, putting our lives in jeopardy, but it's also the nagging sort of like, don't do this, don't do this. So he said, instead of ignoring it, what would happen if you invited your risk manager to a conversation? And literally he did this exercise with me a few years ago where he had my risk manager in one chair and I was in the other and I was supposed to have a conversation with it, which I know seems hokey, but trust me. In that conversation, you know, what came up from my inner risk manager is like, hey, the way I keep Sukinder safe is like, before I make a choice, I always want to list, like, I want to look at the worst case scenario and make sure I can handle it. And if I can handle it, then I can make the choice. And I have kind of learned to honor that, that if that's my way of feeling uh, empowered to make a choice, if that comes from me going like, okay, if I fail, what happens? Do I have five more options I can exercise? If I think through those now, right? then it's weird that by looking by looking through a failure and saying, what happens on the other side? How many more choices are available to me? I get comfort from knowing that if I looked on the other side, I could know what the worst case was and if I could handle it. And if I have many more choices, it's likely not as big a risk as I think. If I only have one choice, it's probably a pretty big risk and I want to be considered, but I want to still play it out. So my inner risk manager taught me is that's always the voice in my head. And interestingly, I've been able to take I would say a decent amount of risk in my life, including after a failure, I've taken more risk. Uh, So I do believe it works because I believe that kind of, it's relatively easy for people to, let's say, get your, what I call your FOMO going, your fear of missing out, this, this visualizing the positive, you know, people want to visualize the positive, right? Visualize, visualize, visualize. 
But the minute something doesn't go the way they, pl they plan, they really are quite shaken. And so for me, you know, when I can make a, when I can look at a choice and plan for volatility, I'm like, it's not going to go exactly how I predict. It might go mostly like how I predicted. Great. But if it doesn't go how, like how I predicted, I want to know that I can deal with the volatility on the other side. For me, I have comfort then in dealing, knowing I can deal with volatility. I think when people are like, I made a plan, it's perfect. I visualized only the positive. And then the minute one thing doesn't go the way they plan, they risk being like really shaken and it shakes their faith in themselves. And I'm like, Actually, you know, risks, the definition of risk is uncertainty. Like there's no certain situation. So um, for me, I find that tactic is probably a more useful tool to shrink your fear of failure. And I always say, if your fear of missing out is greater than your fear of failure, you will act. If your fear of failure is greater than your fear of missing out, you won't act. But most people think they just need to ramp their FOMO. Like just visualize the positive. I'm like, You've spent a little bit, if you spent your energy actually imagining the downside and, and knowing you would have five more choices to make, maybe that shrinks your fear enough to act. Right, right. I loved that comparison or that sort of, that frame of the FOMO versus the, the fear of failure and reading that. I'm curious though, because I went through this exercise with myself a couple of years ago, just what happens if I take fear out of my diet? Because fear, I, I mean... Mm -hmm. irrational fear, right? If I'm being yes. chased by a bear or a clown, yes, I will be afraid, right? However, fear at times can also be paralyzing for people, right? So do, just from your experience and your sort of studying this so deeply, um, does fear, ha is fear always a part of the equation? Can it be debilitating? Um, how can you make decisions that aren't fear-based? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, I'm not sure, and maybe I am naive. I'm not sure I know people who have no fear. I really like, I, I mean, I think it's just about the size of the fear. So I think that what happens when we take little risks, so you say, well, how would you, how would you prevent fear from being debilitating? I think the best actually cure for fear being debilitating is taking little risks and experiencing like micro successes and micro failures, because you sort of become indoctrinated to it. You know, in my career, I actually grew up in sales, right? And so in sales, it turns out that your expectation is, and on average, it doesn't work out. Literally, you are pipelining, pipelining, pipelining with the knowledge that two out of every 10 opportunities may result actually in something that can meet your goal, right? But the, but the good news about sales is it totally indoctrinates you to the idea of failure. You're like, okay, I tried, that person's not interested, I move on. And so for me, I don't know that I know people who have zero fear, but what I think is there are people who can put fear in perspective. And I think putting fear in its proper perspective is the, is the key thing. So I always say to people, name the fear, size the fear. And you can size the fear by knowing how many choices you have available if something fails. And I, I, I think I, I talked about this in the book, you know, Jeff Bezos, when he wrote his shareholder letter and taking Amazon public, talked about why Amazon is so agile. And he said, it's because Amazon um, knows the thing that, you know, I know the thing that most people don't, which is that most of the decisions we make are what's called two-way doors. You can go through. If it doesn't work out, you can come back. Like, you know, so very few decisions are actually one-way doors. And I think knowing that is like really freeing. If you know you can go and come back, if you know that, you know, you took a little risk, it didn't work out and you can take another one tomorrow. I think that the things we can do to reduce fear are far more realistic than it ever going away. So I'm much more of a put fear in perspective person. Um, and I do think what is debilitating is when fear grows in size above its proportions. And I think that happens a lot for people. I think they imagine the worst, right? And I'm like, okay, just 
practice taking little risks and just add up the ones that worked out and the ones that didn't. And the ones that didn't, like really what was the damage done? And I think when people do that, they sort of get indoctrinated to this idea like, yeah, if it doesn't work out, like move on. You know, it's data. Yeah. Yep. Fail fast and recover, right? How do we, mm-hmm. how do we take from this? And I would thing? say fail little and recover. Like, yeah. do have yeah. lots of little failures. Like that's a, like, you know, it's a lot easier to deal with those than a big failure, but it's also yeah. training your muscle, right? Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. You wrote, uh, I think, practically a whole chapter really on proximity to opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Proximity to opportunity being so critical in uh, building those choices, right? Creating mm-hmm. those choices and understanding mm-hmm. what, what the full landscape is. Do you commit and, and encourage others to commit to bringing, you know, women, people of color up and provide them with that proximity to opportunity? What does that look like for you? How, how are you intentional about that? Sure. So first of all, I think you hit on the key, uh, on one of the key words, right? When we want to achieve something or move towards something new, being proximate to it is so powerful. A, because we see the practitioners of that thing and how they do their work and we can learn by osmosis. B, because just by being around, right, we not only absorb knowledge, but opportunities may show up, right? It's sort of like if you say, I want to be an entrepreneur, but you don't know how, but you go work at a startup, chances are you may be working with people who then start a company and invite you to join, right? So when we're proximate, we learn by osmosis, opportunities show up faster, we learn from masters, right? All of that happens. So I think you hit on the key point, right? When, you know, I wrote wrote this whole book on possibility, you know, like let's reframe risk as possibilities, as the pursuit of possibilities, you know, in a serial manner. And, and the obvious question in the book is, well, if there's so much possibility, why do so many people have so little? Do you know what I mean? Like literally. So I think we can acknowledge that possibility, just because it's abundant, it doesn't mean it's being equally distributed. Because to your point, some people have access and some people do not have access systemically. And so I think in my own life, you know, what I've come to realize is first and foremost for me and for others, what I say is, you're likely to be proximate and be able to take full advantage of opportunities when you put yourself in environments that have shared values with who you are. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think there's bias and discrimination everywhere. I'm sure I'm biased. I mean, we all carry bias, right? But I'm, yes, we all do. It's habit and see, we all have our own preconceived notions. But when we're in tribes of people who we think have a, a similar worldview of what's just and fair, We can even have the conversation about bias. We can take that risk, right? And believe that everybody has the same intention to create equal access. When we feel that we're in an environment that is unsafe and and everybody doesn't share the same value system, it's unlikely we'd ever even try and solve discrimination or bias. So I just want to make that point. For me, I feel like I have mostly been able to pursue possibility because I've been in environments um, and chosen to working environments where I have a values fit. But I think it goes further than that. So you say, how am I intentional? I think, I think for me, I don't know that I'm, I wouldn't say I'm very intentional about the teams I build in the sense that I treat the men and women equally. I don't presume the women on my team or the people of color are any less ambitious or what. I mean, I, I'm equally brutal. Let's put it that way. Right, right, but, right. But what I've been told and what I appreciate is simply being a female leader who shows up authentically to work and doesn't mind talking about their kids. And, you know, it, when I was at Google, my daughter flew with me around the world, like my entire team saw it. Mm. Like that's what it took to be a mother and to run an international operation. What I've heard back is, although I may not viscerally say, well, I'm going to do this for this class of, you know, class of employees or, you know, but what I have done is strive to be somebody who shows up authentically as a person of color, as a mother, 
you know, as somebody who wants to be a kick-ass leader and win, um, and that you can hold all those things together. And I want to give license to the people around me to show up authentically as who they are. Like mostly I want to create environments where people feel like, yes, I can be who I am and it's safe to be who I am. That is, I think that's that what is my work as a leader, right? To make sure that the environments I create are environments where people feel safe, because if you feel safe, you'll take risk. Um, that's the way I know how to show up, but I don't really think it's like, you know, and of course I do all the things that people talk about. Yes. Do we look at the ratios on diversity and all this? Of course we do, but you know, do we build, you know, diverse pipelines, but that's like the hard stuff. The soft stuff as a leader is like, you know, how do you model imperfection and authenticity and, you know, and signal what your own values are in order to make people feel comfortable, you know, when they show up, that they can show up fully. I think that's really well, important. And- you know, we look at too, no, I appreciate that, that the example that you're setting, right, is that this is okay, that we have lives, we have kids, right? And I'm just looking at this mass, you know, exodus that that everyone's talking about of, of the workforce during shelter in place of women, right? And so, I mean, really the, I think the the conditions are going to have to change, right? So that we get that talent back. And so do you see sort of a trend towards more flexibility to get to get more women back and in? Because there's so much talent right now out there uh, that, that uh, unfortunately we've lost temporarily, hopefully. Yeah, I, I would say that um, I see multiple tailwinds and still some headwinds, you know, to kind of the environment. So the tailwinds are, look, we just lived in a continue to live a year where everybody saw everybody's home life. You know, any scenario that a leader was perfect, you know, went out the window when their kid came, you know, like racing through the door, screaming something, you know, while you're trying to look like the perfect leader, right? So I think, first of all, I think we we kind of have an, you know, a, a massive tailwind on workforce flexibility, like because everybody finally has some empathy for what it means to sort of manage your full life and it's all been on display. So that's a tailwind. That means like if you're sort of thinking about how do you create a more flexible workspace or you're somebody craving more flexibility, there may be far more license to ask and receive than we've had in previous eras where we felt like you keep your home life at home and your work life at work. And, you know, okay, so that's, that's a tailwind. Check. Number two. Um, obviously at the founder of the board list where we put, you know, we try and we're a marketplace that creates board opportunities for people of color and women. Um, there's massive tailwinds on pressure to create diversity in leadership and all through the organization. So IE to, um, uh, increase the ranks, right. At the, from the, you know, every level of the organization, all the way to the boardroom of kind of diverse populations, right. At work. And that's a result of societal pressure, you know, changing demographics of work, changing demographics of your customer base, technology disruption, right? So the good news is, again, there's a lot more that is being done to try and bring, you know, all the talent available into, you know, all the world's companies. That's great. Now, what's the headwind? The headwind is, uh, if you want women to fully participate in work, caregiving continues to be a massive crisis, right? So... I love what Biden is trying to do with the infrastructure bill. Whatever you think about the rest of the infrastructure bill, we can agree that it's the first attempt, you know, made to actually address caregiving, you know, is like the infrastructure needed for our economy. I mean, the fact that we don't at this point still have a national family leave act is ridiculous that only can you get those protections state by state. So the the challenge of this moment is that caregiving needs to be solved. Now, kids are going back to school. So that's one way, you know, that women can start to participate 
more fully. And hopefully staying to, there. Yeah. And hopefully staying there. <laughs> yeah. But many still have older parents, you know, and, and there's, and the board list just did a survey on this. Women are still predominantly the caregivers at home, even though men are picking up some of the slack. It's not all. So I think the headwind is unless we create more infrastructure and support um, for caregiving, it's very difficult. And you can say that's a government's problem. I could say it's also the problem of like every wealthy corporation out there. If you have a lot of money and you want all the world's talent to show up and you want women to stay in and make it to the leadership ranks, you have to make it possible. So what can you do to solve the caregiving crisis as a corporate leader? Like that is your opportunity. I want to close here before we get to audience questions with one of uh, one of your quotes here that I just love. Understanding that having choices in life is a privilege. That is critical, right? And you should choose to exercise them right? And our privilege. So Kendra, it's so wonderful to talk to you. And I'm excited to get to some audience questions here. I see them floating in the chat. So I'm going to switch gears here and, and start with this one um, that, that I think is interesting. And I'm curious your answer to this. Do you think you handle risk differently as a woman? And how can men support women who are often socialized to minimize risk? Your thoughts on that? Um, so I'll tell you what the research says versus me. The research says, and you know, there's a lot of research on gender and risk taking. Um, the research suggests I found one analysis, believe it or not, of 150 different individual studies on gender and risk taking, and that meta analysis said that on 14 of 16 dimensions, women actually do take less risk than men. Um, it also noted that men are more indiscriminate in their risk taking and take risks when they shouldn't, <laughs> and women are. <laughs> less likely to take risks that are relatively innocuous and good, i.e. little risks. And so um, the research says, despite like what, however I show up or not, the research says that there is actually a risk-taking difference between men and women. Um, the, the, the hope though, there, though, and I want to come to it when we think about what we can do to support you know, more risk-taking from diverse populations, is um, that the thing that was most interesting is it said it's not, it's not absolute. It, um, it actually diminishes those differences, diminish with age and experience, which is great. Um, and it also says that um, and suggests that context matters. So people are more likely to take risk in A, context that they care about, and B, context where they think they'll be successful. So, um, and the converse of that is there's, there's also research that shows, and then I'll finish and come to you answering your question, that in fact, the self-fulfilling prophecy of women act in the way that they are perceived because there's a perception that women take less risk, there is in fact research suggests that they then take less risk. <laughs> so, so what does that mean for all of you? If you're like, if you're a man who is trying to create uh, a supportive environment uh, for women, I think it's a, how do you encourage their risk taking and presume their ambition is equal as opposed to presuming the opposite? So, you know, if the converse is that we, you know, we carry a myth around and we perpetuate a myth, that women are more risk averse than in fact, they act in ways that are more risk averse. If we as leaders perpetuate a reality that women have as much ambition and are as capable as men and encourage them to take risk, you know, as if it is their opportunity and not their lack, you know, I think we can help, you know, the leaders that we, you know, the people that are in our teams feel more safe taking risk. So I think number one, clearly encouragement and validation of people striving, of women striving, of people of color striving. Like, you know, you know this, words like she's too aggressive, like that is the opposite. Mm. That is mm -mm. the opposite <laughs> of honoring somebody's ambition. I mean, no one would dare say that to a man ever. 
you know, to say that somebody who's a person of color is aggressive because they flag an issue. Like that is the type of word that kills possibility and reinforces the stereotypes that we're not interested in. So I think that's, I think that's really important. Number two, when you know this, I think it's like, follow the numbers. Like, you know, the one thing if we're a leader is the numbers don't lie. And so, you know, when the numbers in your organization suggest that women are being promoted at a lesser rate than men or people of color are being promoted at a lesser rate than people who are white, like follow the data and ask questions, you know, show up and be in and just be curious, you know, go have the conversations. And I know that it's a time that's fraught with risk where, you know, I know that if you're, you know, if you're a man and you're white, you might think, God, even opening up that conversation, like I don't mean to, but I could offend somebody or expose someone. I always say to, you know, people of color and women as well, like, look, it's pretty hard moving through the world with a chip on your shoulder. Bias exists. But if you can presume, if you're in an environment of shared values, presume positive intent, because no one's going to be perfect. So I say, like, again, if you're in an environment where you think mostly people show up and are good people and share your value system, then, you know, presume the positive intent of the person who's asking, even if they don't ask perfectly, they're just trying to figure it out. You know, yeah. <laughs> So I think have, it, the, have okay. that courageous conversation, right? Yeah. I have mean, the courageous it's... conversation and yeah. like, and, on the, and like have some forgiveness if you are a person of color or a woman, not forgiveness of microaggression, but forgiveness of people who are just trying to ask and learn and they may not do it perfectly, but look for what their intention is in that moment. You know, one of my mantras this year has been grace, empathy, and flexibility. Grace, mm-hmm. empathy, and flexibility, right? Just to get Those through all the ones. change. Yeah. You know, I mean, yes. And they, they continue into 2021, Sukender, let me tell you. They <laughs> is there an do. instance, right? Are there instances when you would say FOMO does more harm than good? That's one of our audience questions here. Your thoughts on that? Um I'll, I'll tell you, I think that um, there are uh, on my uh, on the website for the book, there's something fun everybody in the audience can do. They can take a risk quiz, which really, you know, was, by the way, it wasn't done by scientists. It was done by me and my team, but it really creates four risk archetypes for, you know, thinking about like, what's your natural risk taking style? And one of those archetypes is what we call the change seeker. Okay. So the change seeker is the person who never misses out, right? Like, you know, you might think they're having the most fun, (laughs) you know, they move pretty easily from thing to thing, right? Not much deters them. Sometimes you might call them impulsive, but you know, like, you know, they're going to have a lot of really great life experiences, right? Um, I think if there is a downside to always living with just FOMO, you know, that fear of missing out makes us sometimes jump from thing to thing to thing without ever having impact at the place where we're at. You know, I think you guys know this, like the shiny new penny. So of course I like, I'm a risk taker and I get excited by new things, but mostly my career has been built on the fact that I want to master the thing I'm at and have impact before I make a next choice. And so, you know, for me, as I've said before, I feel the most painful failures are when I didn't even have an impact. You know, I didn't even like literally like, what was that for? Versus the failures I've had where I strove, I had an impact I can point to and said, you know, we accomplished this and this and this and you know, the people who worked out, they're better off. Their careers accelerated, even if we didn't like make this startup the world's most, you know, biggest unicorn. Um, so I really feel that uh, when it comes to FOMO alone, it's real risk is that you just keep jumping from thing to thing to thing and you never stay and keep choosing every day to take little risks to, to make an impact on the thing that you chose, right? So that bigger choice, once you choose it, you're not done then you actually have to go make a reality of whatever your dream is. And that's all about taking little risks and staying through the hard stuff. So yeah, I think the real risk of FOMO is like, you just keep moving from thing to thing 
but you never really deliver impact. And by the way, that's not a very fulfilling career. It might be a risk-taking one, but it doesn't deliver the yeah. goods. Yeah, for sure. For you or others, right? Lack of satisfaction and Absolutely. being able to see the fruits of your labor and everything else. Yeah. So you mentioned you have three kids. I have two daughters. This question is very much on my mind lately, which is how are we raising our kids to be leaders? And do you think the next generations are as driven and prepared to meet, oh my God, the many challenges that we are leaving them? Your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great question because I like you, I wake up every day and I'm I want my children to be driven, but I want them to be safe. I want to help them, but I want them to hustle. Like it's you know we're all going through. Again, when we have the privilege of feeling secure, our our conundrum is like how much do we give our children of that security, and how much do we sort of just try and, and give them drive? You know, I think for for me, one of the uh, mantras I've sort of tried to stick to is. I don't know that I have to train my daughter to be a leader, but I do believe I want my children to be makers. And by that, I mean people who understand that makership is like, the, like that, that for them, possibility should be like, I can manifest the thing I want. You know, it's just, it's, it's a matter of tiny acts. I've never wanted my children to feel like being an entrepreneur is something mighty. You know, when my daughter was young, you know, we published a book on blurb. I just wanted her to see that like, okay, if you want to be an author, it's really just about taking those stories you wrote and we're going to retype them in a book and we're going to send it away. And like, you're going to have a product, you know, she was a Girl Scout. And the thing I loved about the Girl Scouts is like, yes, like you're a little entrepreneur. So I mostly have wanted my children to feel like they can be creative problem solvers and like, and just makers, because I think when you have a maker mindset, you know, and so just some of that like design thinking, it, it helps you be a creative problem solver. So I maybe I want my children just to understand that acts of makership small can can result in something. And I don't know if that makes sense. Hopefully it does. So um, so makership is what I really have wanted my children to learn. And sometimes I feel like it's by exposing them to entrepreneurship in their own life. Sometimes it's been about taking them to work and being like, yeah, like this is how the sausage is made. Um, I have the fun, fun um, privilege now that my oldest son is 21 and he has, you know, he's a, in his third year and going to his final year with a business degree. And he's really curious about entrepreneurship. So like I sat down with him last summer, he had a job at a startup and I showed him some of the companies that like I'm an angel investor in and just like to give him these like little exposures. Um, so I think those little exposures, these glimpses might be what we can give our children. Um, so that's my best guess. But I will tell you this, like they are the, the, my most hopeful moments is our children are like so much more facile and agile and things than we were. You know, our parents would say that about us. I look at my children and like how oh my gosh, facile right? they are with devices and figuring things out. And, you know, they're on Google calendar and they figured this out and that out. And they're telling me, you know, stuff that I never do. I mean, I learn a lot of my new stuff from my kids. Um, yeah, completely. Um, so I think they have a facility and an agileness. And I think like the biggest things they're growing up in a world where kind of, no, nobody in my family or the families I know thinks it's strange to have a, a president who is African-American or a vice president who's a woman or right. a mother who's a CEO or, you know, a turbaned man who's an so entrepreneur. Beautiful. Like, right. They, they, right. they, you know, I don't want to say that they don't see color because color exists, but I think that they see a world that is full of color and that's not unusual to them. I love that. Absolutely. When we moved over to San Jose, my daughter said, I told my daughter, we have a new doctor for you. We found a new pediatrician. She goes, what's her name? Like she assumed <laughs> nice. as a five-year-old, right? That it was a woman. So I completely I love that. Uh, appreciate that. Right. I love uh, that. And, and I'd love to get to one more question. I think we have time or maybe two more here. You know, this is, um, 
it's a scary time during COVID to be jumping and taking risks and leaving careers, right? Someone has a question here that I can certainly relate to that shaking the boat or taking the leap is terrifying when such huge shifts are happening in our world, right? So do you agree with that? And should we think about risk-taking differently in the middle of a pandemic and everything mm-hmm. else that's happening? Yeah, I look, I first of all, I think that The one thing everybody should take away from the pandemic is that our own resiliency and agility is a lot more than we thought it thought it was. So I would posit even to the person who wrote in, I bet you made decisions in a heartbeat and on a dime much quicker for your family, for school, for work, you know, because you had to. Right. So the first and most important thing is don't lose the lesson that even in a crisis, often we actually take more risks and are more agile than we are when times are stable. And we have too much time to your point to like worry and cycle and think about everything that could go wrong. Weirdly, you know, we, as I said to people, like we took more risk to avoid harm than we often take in our daily lives when things are good. So I'd say the first thing that COVID should give you is, is um, a grounding, you know, in your own agility and resilience. Now that doesn't mean that for you, like the right time is to walk out and take a gigantic risk today. I think that it may well be that, you know, having kind of gone through a lot of work upheaval, you're trying to get your bearings and, you know, get your feet under you. There's nothing wrong with that. Mostly, I think that it's about, you know, reaching for possibilities, big or small, and taking the lesson from COVID that you are far more agile and resilient than you think you are and far more capable. And just to remember to exercise that capacity in good times, right? So yeah, if you're like, hey, I want to take a minute. It has been a crazy year. I'm not suggesting that everybody quit their jobs, but I'm suggesting we just learned a really powerful lesson about ourselves and actually our ability to respond to risk and also understand risk comes and finds you whether you like it or not. So the idea of taking that, what is now a superpower you didn't realize you had and just knowing when to tap into it. And if you can tap it into only little ways, believe me, little ways are as good as big ways. It's just about kind of, uh, having some confidence in your ability to choose possibility. You know, it's not just when times are bad, it's when times are good. You can do that too. That's right. Oh, I love it. Wonderful way to wrap up our audience Q&A here. I want to thank you to our audience for all these great questions. Um, but before we officially wrap, it is a tradition here to ask all our speakers that magic question, Sukinder. Hopefully <laughs> you've got an answer. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? I'm interested in hearing yours. Um My 60-second idea to change the world is not only that each of us should choose possibility, but that each of us can take an opportunity when we're choosing possibility for ourselves to expand possibility for others. It's not that hard. So, you know, once you realize that you can choose possibility for yourself, like, what does it take to incrementally expand opportunity for others as you're expanding it for yourself? Not that much, but it has a powerful effect in multiplying possibilities. Proximity to opportunity. That's right. That's right. Wonderful. You don't have to give up your own ambitions. Just expand them to include others. Thank you so much, Sue Kinder. Sue Cassidy, for joining me today at Inforum. So wonderful to get to know you a little better, uh, hear your story. Um, and a reminder that Sue Kinder's book, Choose Possibility, Take Risks and Thrive, Even When You Fail, uh, can be purchased through your preferred bookseller. Uh, if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. And I'm Suzanne St. John Crane from American Leadership Forum. Thank you so much. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Inform, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. 
Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org.